History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 133rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are featuring a location in Oregon, and that is McMenamin's Edgefield. McMenamin's. <laughs> That's, I think it's fun to say McMenamin's. This was suggested by our listener, Jonathan Fishletter, and he is also going to join us on this episode to share his haunting experience at this location. We also got research assistance from Lindsay Smith. Before we share that with you guys, we'd like you to check out our website, historygoesbump.com. It's where you can find everywhere you'd ever want to find us on social media. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get a couple of emails. The first is from Marissa. She said, uh, hi, Diane Denise, just want to start off by saying I absolutely love your podcast. I listen to many different podcasts every day while at my office job, and yours is one of the few that I've gone back and listened to every single episode. I'm from New York, but one of my best friends lives in Orlando and works for Disney, so I'm hoping to one day meet up for a ghost tour with you guys. Keep up the amazing work, and thank you for putting out such a great show. Well, thanks so much, Marissa, for sending us that. And then we heard from Cindy, and this was in regards to our Geronimo podcast. And Denise, remember on there we mentioned that Geronimo's skull, we're not exactly sure where it would be? I do remember us talking about that. Well, Cindy shared this story. I just finished listening to your Geronimo podcast and the part about a skull reminded me of something that happened at my work. I worked in the business department of a school district in California. Every day I would unlock our safe, which was about six feet tall, so that our staff had access to it. On the top shelf of the safe was a cardboard box that said, do not remove unless you notify the superintendent. The box took up quite a bit of space and we were constantly moving it around to get to other items in the safe. Finally, after several months, I asked the superintendent what was in the box and could it be moved somewhere else? He said no, because it contained a skull. Of course, I didn't believe him and he went to the safe and took out the box. Inside, surrounded by styrofoam pellets, was a skull. Apparently, a teacher had been using the skull in one of his classes when someone discovered that not only was it real, but that it may have belonged to a Native American. The skull was being kept in the safe until the courts could decide who the skull belonged to, the district, the teacher, or the Native American tribe who was claiming it. The skull remained in the safe for a couple of years and finally was returned to the tribe so the tribe could give it a proper burial. We didn't, quote-unquote, advertise the fact that the skull was in the safe first out of respect for the individual the skull belonged to, second because there was legal litigation going on, and finally not to freak out any of the staff. Periodically, someone would ask what was in the box, and I would say it was a skull. Of course, who would believe that? So a quick peek, and the doubting individual was a believer. My understanding was that one of the ways they were able to decide that it was a Native American was by the teeth, which indicated that the individual lived close to the ocean and ate food that was found in that area. So maybe Geronimo's skull has been forgotten in someone's safe. And she ended it with, that is for you to decide. Hey, very cool. Well, we appreciate you sharing that, Cindy. And my question back to her was, wonder if anything weird went on in the school because you had that skull sitting there separated from its body. That seems like it would cause a little bit of unrest. I would think so. Especially if it was being used to display in a classroom. And it makes you wonder how the teacher got a hold of that. I know, it's mysteries, mysteries. Just a little weird. 
We're recording this before we leave for Alton, Illinois, to go to the Haunted America Conference. We're really looking forward to meeting some of our listeners. This should be the biggest meetup that we've had as of yet. We are going to put together some sound bites from the conference that we're going to share with everybody. So we'll have a bonus cast that will be in the regular feed so everybody can listen in to all of the different things that are going on at the event and uh, the meetups that we have and that kind of thing to kind of bring you along with us. So be looking for that in the future. want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Ivy. Hey, Ivy. And Jessica. Hey, Jessica. Denise, are you ready to go to McMenamin's? I absolutely am. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. There is a forest in Poland that looks like something straight out of a Brian Froud illustration. One look at Poland's crooked forest and a person could believe that fairies are real and flitting about between the trees. The trees of this forest are not only weirdly bent, hence the name crooked, but they all bend in the same direction, and the bend in their trunk is very low to the ground. There are around 400 trees here, and they were all planted around 1930. Even more peculiar is the fact that this force of trees is surrounded by a bigger force of trees with perfectly straight trunks. It is believed that the trees were purposely grown this way, perhaps to be used in boat making. But the outbreak of World War II has left whoever was tending the grove and the purpose they had for the trees a mystery. But is this really something man-made? Could something paranormal have bent these trees this way? Perhaps some kind of energy field. We know Occam's razor should cause us to lean in the man-made explanation, but isn't it more fun to believe that fairies and gods got into a fight and this crooked forest was the result? So the forest might have been man-made, but even so, the crooked forest certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. This Day in History This Day in History is by April Rogers Crick. On this day, June 28, 1914, World War I began, and on this day, June 28, in 1919, World War I came to an end. Austrian Archduke Francis Ferdinand, heir to Austria-Hungary, and his wife Sofia were assassinated in Sarajevo, Bosnia by a Serbian nationalist. It happened as the royal couple rode through the streets of Sarajevo in an open touring car. 
seven young radicals from an obscure Serbian-Bosnian nationalist group called the Black Hand lay in wait. An initial assassination attempt failed, but a wrong turn brought the car near Gavrilo Princip, who fired two shots at point-blank range into the Austrian Archduke and his wife. Within minutes, both were dead. Princip was arrested, but political tensions were so high between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia that war broke out as a result. International alliances brought one country after another into the conflict. This is the event that triggered World War I. Five years of pure hell ensued. Many different forms of fighting and weapons were used in battle. World War I was the first major war in which airplanes were used as a significant part of the military. Trench warfare was one of the most harsh ways of fighting used in the battle. Trenches were muddy, cold, and full of water. Soldiers were exposed to the elements. In the winter, temperatures in the trenches would fall below zero, causing frostbite and the loss of toes and fingers. Soldiers were also exposed to diseases and sickness mostly carried by black and brown rats, but lice and other rodents contributed to the decline of health of soldiers. Along with illness, there was a limited amount of food and daily necessities. The harsh ways of trench warfare resulted in thousands of casualties. Besides firearms and grenades, chemicals were used. Chemical warfare was a major component of the first global war and first war of the 20th century. Those chemicals included tear gas and the horrendous mustard gas. On June 28, 1919, the Treaty of Versailles, a peace treaty between Germany and the Allied powers, was signed effectively ending the war exactly five years to the day that it began. History Goes Bump Podcast. McMinimum's Edgefield is located in Troutdale, Oregon, and it is a historic hotel that features a little bit of everything, from fine dining to concerts, to a movie theater, to a distillery and brewery, to a spa and golf. The spot once housed the county poor farm, and as we know from prior experiences with other podcasts, these locations sometimes leave an essence of negativity that lead to hauntings. There are several spirits here, and some of them seem to be hitchhiking ghosts, like our infamous friends at the Haunted Mansion. We are joined on today's episode by our listener, Jonathan Fishletter, as he shares his visit to the location the creepy feelings and experience that he had while there, and how one of those entities decided to follow him home, and what he did to get rid of it. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of McMinimum's Edgefield. And Denise, on a lot of our shows, we are very history-heavy rather than paranormal ghost story-heavy, and there's some where we're really scratching to try to get to the heart of the hauntings and such. This show is just the opposite there's going to be a lot of scary and ghostly experiences with this one. So for those of you who are more into the paranormal than the history, this show is for you. Absolutely. It seems like it's trying to give our beloved Haunted Mansion a run for its money with 999 haunts. But I don't know that we've counted them here yet. (laughs) It's probably pretty close. The area that would become the city of Troutdale, Oregon, is located at the confluence of the Sandy and Columbia Rivers. Lieutenant Broughton and his crew discovered this spot in 1792. The first settlers would not lay stakes here until 1850, and one of those men was founder David F. Buxton. Former sea captain John Harlow planned out the town and built a trout farm. 
He called his farm Troutdale, and eventually the town would take that name. Harlow convinced the railroad to build a line near his farm so he could ship his fish, and that really established the town. His wife platted out the town after his death in 1883. The city really started building up in 1890, and the city was incorporated in 1907. And a little fun fact about Troutdale. In the 1920s, Troutdale was known as the celery capital of the world. Wow, that would be a claim to fame to have. (laughs) No kidding. Poorhouses cropped up in many cities as a place to house the less desirables in the city. Portland had built Hillside Farm in their West Hills to house the disabled, ill, and poor. Over time, the place had deteriorated, and after an inspection in 1910, it was decided that a new place needed to be built. Multnomah County Commissioners chose Troutdale for the new poorhouse, and they planned to make it a place that was more progressive. Their goal was to help the poor become more self-sufficient by running a farm. The farm would cover 345 acres and was opened in 1911. Originally, there was a main building with several outbuildings. There was also a pig farm and dairy. The first people to move on to the farm were called inmates, and there were 211 of them. Later, the term resident would be used rather than inmates, which is much more pleasant because these weren't prisoners. (laughs) No, they were just people who needed a helping hand. The residents were divided into two groups. The group that worked in the fields would be rewarded with meat three times a day. Those that did not work only got meat at one meal. The Multnomah County Poor Farm was a huge success. Within three years, there were 225 chicken, 100 Dura cogs, a large herd of Holstein dairy cows, 420 Plymouth Rock hens, lots of crops, eggs, fruit, grain, and 27 acres of potatoes. The farm was able to feed all of its residents, patients at the county hospital, inmates at the jail, and surplus was sold to markets. The Great Depression brought the population at the poor farm to 600. It was overpopulated, and to compensate, closets were turned into rooms, and three or more people were put into each room. Many talented people were here, and they turned the basement into a bazaar of sorts where they could sell their handiwork, and people from all over Portland came to buy. World War II and President Roosevelt's New Deal would pull many of the workers from the farm, and soon the only people left were the disabled and sick. Some of the land was laid aside in 1959 and a county jail was built and the inmates were unwilling to work in the fields. I'm thinking if you're an inmate, you work wherever we tell you to. (laughs) The animals had to be sold and the farmland was leased out. The grand farm was falling into disrepair. In 1964, the main building was transformed into a nursing home and the name officially became Edgefield. In 1982, the nursing home was closed and everything was left abandoned. In its seven decades, all types of people had passed through the doors, and each of them just needed extra help to make it in life. Two of those personalities were Frankie, of Frankie and Johnny notoriety, and the nephew of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. He actually turned 100 while he was living at Edgefield, Denise. Wow, that's, that's a long life even for anybody. wonder if he got to be on the Smucker's Jar. Edgefield did not do well while it was abandoned. Vandals would break in and spray paint graffiti on the walls and steal whatever they could get their hands on, basically wreaking havoc on the property. As the buildings fell apart, they became dangerous, and this was a huge liability for the county. They decided that the best decision would be to demolish the buildings. But the Troutdale Historical Society stepped in, and they fought to stop the demolition. It took five years, but they saved the decrepit site. Now they had to find somebody who would want to buy the property. 
Microbrew Pioneer Brothers Mike and Brian McMinimum wanted to dip their toes in the hotel business and they saw the poor farm as a great place to start their business. People, mainly bankers, were a bit confused because McMinimum's was associated with neighborhood pubs, not hotels. And in doing the research on McMenamin's, Denise, they own a lot of properties in Oregon. It's amazing how many places they own there that are just, and it all starts with McMenamin's and then it's whatever city or this one's Edgefield since it was called Edgefield before. So they have a lot of enterprise going on. I think it's just because people wanted to start all their businesses with McMenamin's. The brothers got financing and they started with a winery, which was completed in 1990. In 1991, they added the brewery, a movie theater, power station pub, and eight rooms. Early success helped the brothers to renovate the main lodge, and it was reopened with many more hotel rooms, a spa, a fine dining establishment, and specialty bars. Later came artisan shops, gardens, a golf course, and an area for concerts. What makes McMenamin's unique is the fact that artists were set loose on the place. Every surface now has an artistic flourish celebrating the rich past of the site. And Denise, we've seen this when you look at some of the pictures and I mentioned the water tower in the last episode and how it has stars and moons on it, crescent Mm -hmm. moons and stuff. It's kind of the whimsical little thing that the artists went around doing. I know it's very fun to look at the pictures of it. Something more from that rich past lingers though. Based on the countless experiences we're going to share with you on this episode, it is clear that this is a very haunted and very actively haunted place. We'll share the experiences of guests and employees, and then Jonathan's going to join us a little later and give us his firsthand journey into the creepy and supernatural side of McMenamin's Edgefield. A housekeeper reported, quote, I was doing housekeeping about a month ago, and I was standing at the foot of the bed when suddenly I felt something firmly grab my ankle and not let go until I jumped away. I looked under the bed, and there was nothing. Freaked me out a little, end quote. Another housekeeper entered a room she had cleaned earlier and found the pillows tossed around. Earlier, the guest in the room had told the front desk that she awoke to find someone standing over her bed. Allison, a wine server, said, I have seen a nurse in the hallway upstairs from the winery, and it was 11 o'clock in the morning. I was just walking with a bucket, and I saw the 60s-styled woman, and I could tell she had a little hat on. I could tell she had pantyhose on. That's how clear she was. And she was just walking and you couldn't see keys, but it looked like she was holding keys and she was coming this way. And she kind of turned and she looked like she was going to open the door and then she just vanished, end quote. Berliner said about the full apparition she described as obviously a nurse. She also had the following experience, quote, I was walking on the West End in between the second and third floor. I had had a couple of glasses of wine. I'll admit that it was my birthday. I was walking in where the mural of them handing the residents their sheets and stuff is, and I was really deep in thought about what these people must have gone through and how they felt. And right as I was thinking that, I didn't see anything, but this energy went right through my chest, took my breath completely away. I actually started hyperventilating, and I was like, oh my God, did it leave me? And I started shaking my hands and was like, oh God, please, please let it be out of my body. I couldn't tell, end quote. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's like the ghost passed through her, but she felt like it was still kind of in her. Oh, that would be really freaking me out. It's just like, oh, get it off, get it off, or get it out in this case. 
Yeah, I just, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. And, you know, did she just start hyperventilating because it had freaked her out that bad? Or was it because it had gone through her that it caused her lungs to do that kind of thing? I don't know. It could be either because that would be pretty intense. Another guest reported to the staff that they were awakened by something tapping on their chest in the middle of the night. And another guest wrote, I felt a quick breeze and the strongest sweet scent came over me. It smelled like flowers, kind of perfume-like. I lay in bed for an hour and saw shadows dancing on the walls, the ceiling, and the window. I'm thinking this person laid in bed for an hour and just watched that stuff. (laughs) I would have been down the hall. Spirits were flying around the room. It was a great encounter. (laughs) I don't know. I'm thinking, again, close encounter. I don't want to have them out of there. Another guest had a very unwanted encounter while taking a shower, and this goes back to our other episode in which Roxy shared the encounter that she had with the ghost at the Whaley House. Uh Uh-huh, where she got her hiney pinched. This guest reported, I was taking a shower, then all of a sudden I felt a hand grab my butt. I screamed and grabbed my towel to dry off and get my clothes on. Right as I spotted my shirt, it flew up in the air. I mean, I think I would have just ran out of the, I, I would hope it wasn't a glass shower because I would probably would have just run right through it if something <laughs> grabs me like that. It wouldn't matter where on my body. <laughs> Diane streaking down the halls. <laughs> I would. I would. I'd be the girl going down the hallway screaming with a towel floating behind me. Robin had the following encounter. My husband and I were married at Edgefield in August 2009. As we were packing up and getting ready to leave, I wanted to take a picture of the inscription on the wall about who the room was dedicated for. And you're going to hear more about this from Jonathan later. I lifted my camera, and before I put my finger on the shutter, the camera took a picture. Thankfully, my husband witnessed it happen, so I know I wasn't losing it. Awesome ending to an incredible event. It's amazing what people think are awesome endings. That would be my like, ah. Alexandra McNabb reported, My husband and I frequently go to Edgefield just to look around and catch a movie after dinner. One time when we were just wandering around the place, we got in the elevator. This was before we were married. And as soon as the doors closed, he started kissing me passionately. During the kiss, I felt someone grab a bunch of hair and pull. It was not my husband. His hands were nowhere near my head. I sensed an older woman who was displeased with such a graphic display of private moments in a public place. Freaked me out at the time, but laugh about it now. And then Teresa S. wrote, I was at Edgefield before you bought it. We had a company party there. I had no idea it was haunted at the time. I left the ballroom to find the ladies' room and ended up looking at a wonderful mural of the history of the place. I hope it is still there. I turned to find a janitor with an old rag mop in the hall and it smelled like someone was burning matches. I asked for the ladies' room and he looked at me and pointed down the hall. I went to where he directed me and it was really cold and no bathroom anywhere. I went back where I came from and he wasn't around So I went back to the ballroom and asked one of the hostesses and she pointed me in the right direction and I told her about the janitor and she said that he was not a real janitor and this place was haunted. I have not been able to come back no matter how curious I am about your renovations. Maybe one day. Now the main question I would have is had there been a restroom down there at one time? Or did he even know what a ladies room was depending on what era he was from? A woman named Denise wrote after staying at Edgefield, Just last weekend, and this was 10-7-2011, we spent the night at Edgefield. In the middle of the night while I was asleep, an old man was standing over my bed wanting to shake my hand, and I kept asking him what he wanted and that he had to go in my dream. And he just wanted to shake my hand. I finally shook his hand, he smiled, and I woke up. 
I'm convinced I was visited by a spirit that lived there. Jennifer took pictures when visiting Edgefield, and she was shocked to find the pictures erased. She said, summer of 2009, my best friend and I spent the day enjoying the city, taking pictures and visiting historical sites like the Edgefield. Upon reviewing the day's pictures at the end of the night, every single picture that we had taken inside the hotel had been erased, while all the other pictures from the day remained. Nobody but myself had access to the camera. Weird. That's definitely weird. Debbie Wilson reported, I've been going out to Edgefield since I was 15 years old, and the house that used to be a boys' home back in the 1980s has always been creepy. And I know that it's old land, and a lot went on there before then, but my boyfriend and I were walking around one night a while back, and it wasn't summer yet. We sent pictures all over. That's what I always do, hoping to get something, anything, an orb or a face mist, perhaps. But we were leaving the parking lot, and I was bummed not to get a thing. So I turned one last time to snap the house that I was parked by. Just one last shot, I said. I looked at it, and I saw fog and a face of some kind in the middle of it. It freaked me out, and I just knew there would be nothing there again. And there it was. Everyone could see it that I showed it to. And then I lost the disc from my camera. But if I ever find it, I will post it. It's freaky. And I will be out there again, snapping away. I'm waiting to get a pic of those old rocking chairs on the old creepy porches. LOL, I will, I'm sure. LOL. Renee wrote, In 2010, my husband and I were staying at the Edgefield on the third floor in a corner room. After a night of dinner and fun, we returned to the room to sleep. The next morning, my husband asked why I had to get up last night and where I'd went. I told him that I did not leave all night. He said that he thought it was me pushing off the bed, putting on the white robe, and leaving. My husband told me that he could feel the pressure of weight in the middle of the king-size bed. He thought it was me that had gotten up and laid back down. It wasn't me. We've been back to the Edgefield on two other occasions. What fun. And Cindy reported, The second time that I stayed, I was in the shower, and it felt like fingers gently stroked my front shoulder blade. It wasn't a scary or mean presence, except for that it was touching you while you were in the shower. In October 2011, the last time that my husband and I stayed, we were both sleeping, and at about two in the morning, it sounded as though a large block of wood landed on the floor in our room. Neither of us realized that the other had heard it. When we talked about it in the morning, we noticed that there was a large carpet and couch on the floor where we heard the sound. We both heard it in the same direction. We can't wait to go back in April. We love this place, and it definitely has spirits. An anonymous person wrote, I was at the Edgefield yesterday with my family to attend a wedding. And after the ceremony, when the wedding guests were about to enjoy the wedding feast, I suddenly felt very groggy and fell out of my chair. Good thing hardly anyone noticed that it had happened. Maybe whatever is haunting the Edgefield wanted to crash the wedding by pushing a guest out of his or her reception seat, LOL. Later, when my sister and I checked out the Edgefield's gift shop, I needed to use the bathroom, but had to hurry on out because I felt like I was being watched. It was creepy. Justin stayed in the 90s and wrote, stayed at Edgefield one night back in the 90s during a company Christmas party. Did not know the place was reputed to be haunted and didn't believe in such things anyways. However, as my wife and I were getting ready to go to bed, I distinctly recall the strong presence of an elderly lady sitting in the room with us. I never get weird feelings like that and never have again to this day. It was so strong I hesitated to disrobe for bed and I even examined the room wondering why my mind was insisting something was there when it wasn't. My wife remarked that she felt like we were being watched, which is an unusual statement from her. 
Oddly enough, it was a friendly, almost grandmotherly feeling, and I felt no fear or creepiness at all. Years later, when I found out about the reputation and passed to the hotel, it rattled me. Still does. Don't remember the room number, but it was on the ground floor and looking out the window facing west. You can see the main entryway staircase. And this ghost might play a part in the story that Jonathan's going to tell us as well, because I believe it was an elderly woman that he dealt with. Deansy wrote, I have also been haunted when I unwittingly stayed in a room on the third floor at the Edgefield in Troutdale, McMinimins. When we got our room, I tried opening the closet door for extra pillows, but the door was locked. I then realized that there was a standing wardrobe in the room that had these items. Later that night, as my husband and I went to sleep, my head was on my pillow, and I heard an unlocking sound very loudly in my ear, like my ear was right up against a door. Shortly afterward, I heard creaky footsteps circling the bed. At the time, I was dismissive and thought it was someone walking above our room. Even my husband woke up with a start because the sound of the footsteps were so immediate. We both managed to sleep, but the next morning we realized that there were no rooms above us, and no rooms were immediately next to ours. We were at the south end of the main hallway on the third floor. I think it was number 304. When I went back to work, I mentioned the event to my boss, who was familiar with the Edgefield, lots of interesting history to the place, and he described the shape of the slanted locked closet in the room, which I confirmed, and he said that that room was haunted. He reminded me of one of the paintings in the building that I clearly remember of one of the guest rooms showing a slanted closet with the door open, and in the blackness, there are a pair of eyes. I wasn't frightened during the event and even the painting. The eyes themselves didn't look nasty, but that was quite memorable for me. Yeah, that would be a very interesting, <laughs> especially it's always those shared experiences that really do the convincing. Exactly. Because you're like, okay, I'm not dreaming this. I'm not imagining it. There's somebody else experiencing the same thing as me. Kelly said, I stayed in room 330 last night with two girlfriends, and I'm noticing a lot of these seem to be on the third floor. We came to Edgefield to see the fun concert and stayed the night afterwards. I had a sleep paralysis moment in our room at about 2.30 in the morning. I could see something by the door and I was scared, but I couldn't move. I yelled out because I was scared and one of my girlfriends woke me up. I've never had a sleep paralysis episode before. I also felt something grab my foot, but I'm not sure if I was dreaming or not. Then later in the night at about 4 or 5 a.m., I heard bees buzzing loudly all over the room, but didn't see any bees. Ooh, that takes me to candy, man. I thought it was weird, but went back to sleep. When we all woke up, I told my friends, and when one of them went into the hallway to go use the bathroom, she saw that the murals outside of our room had bees everywhere. Oh, geez. In one picture, a woman is sitting in a rocking chair with a beehive on her head. And we're not talking the hairstyle, I'm guessing. (gasps) I don't think so. I thought that was really creepy, and I hadn't noticed the mural at all the night before. Fun and scary at the same time. Definitely going back again. <laughs> of these people. I was totally creeped out. Definitely going back. It's like going on one of those roller coasters. You're like, no, I'm not going to go on that. And then you go on it and say, I got to go on it again. It was such a rush. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. That is really bizarre, because just to even have a dream about bees... It makes you wonder, did she subconsciously see the murals and incorporated that in her dream? Or did she really not see those murals and then to have that experience? But here's the other catch to this is that those were painted by artists. Where in the world would have they gotten the ideas about the bees, the beehives, putting it on a head? Mm, Probably in her room. It makes you wonder, did they experience and that it would be 
right where the room was. That is, whoa, weird, weird, creepy. Yes. Arlene had an experience in 2010. On 9-12-2010, my husband's sister-in-law and I stayed and wandered the grounds late at night in search of paranormal activity. We took pictures all over the place and caught some mist in the garden area that couldn't be explained. We came around the corner of one of the restaurant terraces that sit below the balconies with two staircases on each side. I don't remember the name and felt something. So my husband snapped a few photos and caught a very compelling white mist streak that is very compelling. I would love to post, but this only allows comments. Then I was walking down the hall from the room to the outside glass doors, and I saw something small, kind of like a white object, run past the door on the outside. It was short. When I walked through the doors, nothing was around. Very cool place. Hope to return someday. Tammy wrote, My husband and I just returned from the New Year's Eve 2014 party at the Edgefield. We had a fabulous time. We stayed three nights and had three experiences. We were in room 203. Our first night, I walked into the bathroom and I saw an old man who was dressed like a janitor. Black pants, black shoes, and white shirt like a uniform. He had large black framed glasses. He was crouching near the floor in what was a phone nook next to the ladies' lounge. He was in such a strange place and position that I stopped and looked at him, kind of waiting to see if he needed help. I smiled at him and he smiled back, so I went on into the ladies' room. When I came out just a moment later, he was gone without a trace. I wonder if this was the same janitor that other woman had asked about the bathroom. That's what I was thinking as I read her comment. The next morning, I realized that the housekeeping staff had no such uniforms and was certain that he was a spirit. I was completely blown away when I came home and read other encounters that happened in the same area near the beautiful mural between the second and third floors. We noticed nothing our second night, but our third night, my husband and I were playing Scrabble in our room, and a very loud voice sounded like someone clearing their throat right behind me. My husband and I both froze, and he swore the sound was right behind me. The rest of the night was pretty quiet, but the next morning I was brushing my teeth in that same bathroom, and I swear there was a dog in the room with me. There is no sound that can duplicate the sound of a dog's feet on wood floor, and that is what I heard. This is kind of like your experience at your house. I know exactly what that sound is, only I heard it on linoleum. I turned around and there was nothing there. I even reached down to see if I could feel anything, but there was nothing there. I stood for a moment and then said, You're a good dog, aren't you? Then there was more nails clicking on the wood floor in a more excited kind of way. I was very justified in my experiences when I read the stories about a dog haunting the second floor. Our encounters were friendly and very memorable. Hmm, interesting. So I wonder why they have a dog haunting that second floor if it came to live at the poorhouse with somebody. Sarah wrote, I stayed at Edgefield in December 2013 and my boyfriend and I went to sleep very early on purpose so that we could wake up in the middle of the night and hopefully catch some ghostly activity. We woke up around 1 a.m. and we had only one lamp on and the said lamp turned off by itself, which at the time was not enough to convince me. We eventually went back to bed. I then woke up not that long after I'd fallen asleep to the sound and sensation of someone tap, tap, tapping on the mattress next to my head. We stayed in room 231, the kazoo cat suite, and since I'm a devout cat lover, my thoughtful boyfriend took a picture of our door for me, but the photo he took was black with dark purple stripes all across it. He was dumbfounded as he had never seen his camera behave that way, and it was his father's camera before him, and he never had any trouble with the camera either. I am convinced that Edgefield is haunted. 
I literally cannot wait to go back. <laughs> There's another one. Ginger reported in October 2014, I just stayed in room 310 two nights ago with my guy. I was in a dream state and felt the presence of something laying between us in bed. It was communicating with me and was gray in shape and color and had the energy of a woman. She floated away and woke both of us up at the same time at 3 a.m. The witching hour. We didn't know until now that Edgefield has the reputation of being haunted. I think we're getting that message. <laughs> yes, we are. Kristen wrote, My friends and I started staying at the Edgefield for our cheap time getaway with just the girls, a.k.a. heated mineral pool and wine. We were staying this past October 17th in 2014 in room 39. We decided to use a ghost radar app to see what or who would come through. We received communication from Warren saying that he was very poor, which makes sense considering what the building used to be. The next morning when we were getting ready to go to breakfast, I couldn't find my hairbrush. I dumped my purse out on the bed and literally shook it to make sure everything was out of it. I told my friends that they should go ahead of me to the restaurant for breakfast because I wanted to take one more look for my brush. Right after they left, I went to my purse, and my brush was sitting on top of everything in my bag. I hadn't left my purse from the time I dumped it out, and my friends were never close to my purse to put it there. I think Warren was having a little fun, or earlier he had messy hair. Sally Ann said, Spent a wonderful Christmas at Edgefield 2014 with my husband. It is not our first visit here, but very excited to have the Queen Suite of the Winery Wing. I've experienced paranormal activity before in my life, but this has been the first time at the Edgefield. I am a light sleeper and was on my left side. I awoke, startled by someone peeling back the covers to completely expose my shoulder, followed by a puff of icy breeze. I immediately rolled over to find my husband facing the opposite direction and snoring contently. I woke him up and asked if he would stay awake for a while with me as I was freaked out and could not return to sleep. It was most definitely an eerie sensation and awareness that something else was there that moment. A family lives on the property that was once part of Edgefield, and they've been having haunting issues as well. Kimberly B. said, My five-year-old and my husband were mentioning today about how the property we live on, which was once part of Multnomah County Poor Farm and is up the hill from Edgefield, is haunted. My husband said every once in a while he'll get the sensation of his ankle being grabbed. And then my daughter mentioned how she sometimes feels her hair being tugged or someone poking her shoulder while she's coloring. I've had moments where I walk in my home, feel a poke in the hip as if I brushed up against an object. But when I look back, nothing is there. It reminded me, though, of how my daughter was when she was between the ages of one and a half and three and a half. I would always catch her in a room talking to herself. At the hype of all these ghost shows, I sat down and asked her a little more about it. She said that she was speaking to the black guy and the white lady. I asked her what they looked like, and she described the black man wearing dark clothes and dirt on top of his shoes. The white lady wore a white dress and a white hat. Hmm, that sounds like a nurse. Very much so. After a period, and if nothing else, she's a lady in white. <laughs> because what year-and-a-half-year-old describes a man wearing dirty clothes like that? I was told, the aside from apparitions of a nurse, that there was also a black man that had wandered off the property, and when he was found, he had become trapped in a barbed wire fence and had died. I asked my daughter about it now, and she excuses it as an imaginary friend. But with the pokes here and there, you have to wonder. And then, Denise, we had mentioned on our prior episode that we were going to be featuring McMenamin's Edgefield, and we got an email from Katie Weber, and she said, Hi, I love your show. I've listened to most episodes, and I was so excited to hear that you were covering Edgefield next week. My brother used to work there. I've been there many times. 
and although a paranormal skeptic, he claims to have seen the ghost of an old top-hatted man in the basement. I'm actually planning a visit home next month, and I'm bringing my boyfriend for his first visit to Edgefield. Can't wait. It's such a cool place. And then she said to keep up the good work. Well, Katie, we want pictures and a report. Absolutely. And now we have the interview that we did with Jonathan to share with all of you. You're going to get a little taste of what it's like to have some hitchhiking ghosts. So how are you? It's so nice to meet you. No, likewise. I'm great. Today has been a very busy day, and I was actually really sweating getting home in time. I wanted to do this from here and not from my office. Well, very cool. Are, do you live in Oregon right now, or do you live somewhere else? I live in San Francisco. I was only uh, on this trip there for work, and it's just it's funny. I've not, I have not thought about this experience and, since it happened, and the fact that I'm, it's the, one of the few things that kind of stands out to share with you um, says a lot, I think. Yeah, it definitely does. When I looked at their website, I was like, what is this place? It's got a ballroom, movies, concerts. It's the most insane thing that you will have ever seen if you go there. I, I mean, yeah, I still, I, you know, just in preparing myself to talk to you about this today, I just remembering it, just going back there in my memory, it's, I'm still not entirely sure. I mean, they build themselves as sort of a playground for adults, if you will. I mean, they have a distillery and a wine bar and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty unique. So when did you go there? So I was there. This was for a retreat, and we had people all around North America, and every office would sponsor a retreat meeting. And it just so happened that Portland was hosting this particular meeting. So this would have been January 2007. And, you know, it's funny because I really loved the people in Portland. I mean, I loved the whole team. But the people in Portland, I just, maybe because I was coming from San Francisco or we were so close or Westerners or whatnot, I just had such a, a, an affinity for them. And so, you know, my colleague and I traveled from San Francisco to Portland and we got picked up at the airport. And the woman who picked us up, who's still a good friend, all of these people, since we've all moved on from these, this company, we've all maintained friendships. And I should ask them all about this particular visit after I hang up with you, and maybe I will. But I was picked up and on the way to this place, it was outside of Portland. It's in a, a town called Troutdale, which I think is maybe the most easternmost extent of the Portland metro area. Okay. Um, the, the driver slash colleague slash friend was telling us about how exciting, oh, this place is going to be great. You're going to love it. You know, really building it up. Not that it needs to be built up, but, you know, there was sort of an ongoing joke that the people from San Francisco always kind of made fun of Portland for whatever reason. I mean, it's just, it's such a lovely city and I'm not making fun of it. I think it was just at the time we were going so often, it felt almost like a second home, which makes what happened even weirder. So we get off the road, roadway, it's like a two-lane highway, and she's just going on and on with details and facts, and we turn into the main driveway, and I see the building, and I just know right away, this is not going to go well. There was just a feeling or a shadow or something hanging over the building. I wasn't terrified yet, but I definitely was paused. I was concerned. Can I ask you for a minute, have you ever felt sensitive at a location before? Absolutely. Many, many times. In fact, okay. it's funny to me that this is the one haunted or supernatural experience that stands out to share with you because I've had so many others that were so much more involved. Okay. Yeah, because just looking so, at the pictures, the, the hotel, it looks very whimsical, like very kind of hodgepodge and not really foreboding. So that's that's interesting that you had just this feeling of like, I don't want to go up there. The building, the whole area is beautiful. They've done amazing work in restoring it. And, and I think they just... 
completed the restoration about the time we were there. And it is beautiful and, and so well kept. And it's such a big part of the community. They have concerts and people come on the weekends and just spend time there. And the thing, I don't even know if it's on the website because I didn't want to taint my memory by looking anything up. You get inside and what they do when you check in is tell you, oh, well, we used to be the poor farm for that county, I think for the whole metropolitan area. And I was not familiar with that and since have learned that they used to, and maybe Oregon was one of the few places that had this. I know we, we didn't have them in California, but the poor farm or poor house was where people who didn't afford to live on their own or who were very, very poor, or I mean, maybe we would put homeless there now, but that's where they lived. So it had this very lodge-like feel and was beautifully restored, but it also had these rooms that were very dormitory-like. So as we checked in, we were given a room and I was beginning to warm up to the fact that I had three days, three very long days here, but you know, I knew that it was going to be fine and I would survive. And then we went to the rooms and my, um, the person who picked me up at the airport slash our assistant friend, whatever, she came with me to my room. And as I opened the door on the wall was an image of the woman that had lived in that room during the poor farm days. Like they'd researched each room and had her whole life story written on the wall. Whoa. So I, I turned to Michael and I said, well, you'll have to be sleep. You'll sleep with me while I'm here. There's no way I'm sleeping in here alone. No way. And Michael laughed at me and I started unpacking. And that's when I noticed that her eyes on the wall were there watching me. And I thought I was putting myself in this place of being fright- afraid just because it was so frightening. But I just, I could have sworn they blinked and I kept asking Michael to watch and he thought I was silly or whatnot. And then we went to dinner. And then that night, when we came back to the room, because I really did make her sleep with me, I just knew there was something that was in there with me. I was afraid, or maybe I was just wanting the company. We were back in the room, in bed, finally fell asleep. I was terrified. I mean, it's very rare that I'm ever afraid, but I had this dream of this woman stroking my back, just gently, sort of like petting me, which just now even thinking about it, oh my gosh, it just was so terrifying. I woke up, it was like three in the morning, four in the morning, and there was no way I was going back to sleep. Uh-huh. Michael, who was sleeping next to me, was asleep. And I, don't know, I ended up going down and getting coffee with a colleague, getting coffee for everyone. And, and our meetings started. And I just felt like I had this tingle on my back the entire day. I just felt really uncomfortable. And as the day progressed, you know, we took a tour of the facility, which really is phenomenal. And I recommend that, you know, you go and anyone go. It's just such a cool place, even though I was so ready to leave by the moment <laughs> we arrived. We took a tour and they spoke about, you know, some of the people. And it just so happens that they highlighted the woman that lived in my room. She was very popular among the men, I guess, is sort of how they it. So she, uh, oh, great. she would eat a lot of other poor farm residents and had one in particular that it was really close with. And I know, it was just really a bizarre aspect to this room that was already bizarre in this place that was already kind of bizarre. I always felt that there was someone just around the corner watching me. And I remember remarking to one of my colleagues, he was from Toronto, and he said, yeah, I had the weirdest dream, very similar to what I described. But it was a man and he was there, he was sort of touching me and I just didn't know what to make of it. You know, normally in a hotel, if I feel awkward or weird or anything, I just turn the TV on and fall asleep. But, you know, these rooms had no TV. I was really reaching for comfort, at, you know, by the time we finished. And, and I remember, you know, finally one evening we went out and we toured and got to go to the distillery and try a little of their distilled beverage and um, had some wine. And, you know, all in all, it was great. And it was a good meeting and very productive. But, you know, a couple of us just didn't feel comfortable there. And as uh, we pulled away, I just remember feeling the tingle in my back. And I thought, you know, this, this is weird. I'm glad I'm going home. You know, I got home. 
And my partner at the time, oh, he was massaging my back or something. And it just, it felt, it wasn't quite ticklish, but it was like pins and needles on my back. It was just really creepy. So I went to my, um, see my spiritual consultant slash psychic. And he said to me that, you know, Jonathan, sit down. I don't want you to freak out, but you have two spirits attached to your back. Oh no. And they're just really excited to pick up with you and go on the ride to come here because they were tired of being in those rooms. And he just looked at me like I was crazy and like they were crazy. And I explained briefly the story and the terror that I felt. I went home. I remember I bought a, I bought a couple bottles of um, gin and some wine. I just, I went home and I threw them out and I, I was just done with Edgefield because it was such a, it was terrifying from the moment I got there. There was just something about the place that was uncomfortable and it just sort of it weighed on me until he removed them from my, my back. How interesting that they, I mean, obviously, if they go back to the poor days, we're talking decades and decades ago, why all of a sudden did they feel like they could come with you? So I thought about that as I was thinking about getting ready for this call. And I think, in, in honestly, I must have tempted them. I was tempting the spirits without even trying to tempt the spirits. Yeah, because, I mean, you don't sound like you would have been, like, open to, hey, let's hang out, or everything about it, you were, like, repelled and scared. If anything, it was the absolute opposite. I was so shut down and just wanting to, I really wanted to just be invisible, get through my meetings in this place, and go home, which is unlike me. Normally, I'm really adventurous, and I love to go out and explore wherever I am, but there was just something about this place that, I don't know. It just, it was something I really, I wish I could have been in a a room where there was not, you know, the image of a woman painted on the side with her whole life story and probably not in a former poor farm also. That was probably not the best venue. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is when you mentioned that the only other time that I've heard of poor farms when we've done research is generally an asylum is what ends up on those spots because the poor farms is where they basically put the rejects, quote unquote, of society. And it just would make sense that it would develop into a place that's like an asylum where they want to put those people. So it makes me wonder if that's kind of what was going on with these people. I just remember this, the thing that stood out to me was that I thought that it was really awful. And this was the thirties. I want to think when this was up and going, I just remember thinking, God, if you really end up here, how awful for you to be in a place they call the poor farm. I mean, how do you how do you rally yourself to maybe pull yourself out of this place to move on to a life that maybe you feel is a little more productive or whatever? And I'm sure there were a host of reasons that people were were put there or ended up there. And and mental illness very may very well have been mm-hmm. um, one of them. I don't remember there being any story. I mean, we got the history of it, but there was no in depth story about well, this was an asylum. I mean, it really was a place for people who just couldn't go anywhere else. And yeah, and so it just is interesting that you come along. You obviously have a positive energy that they liked. <laughs> you know, I've tried not to think too much about that particular experience just because it was so upsetting at the time when I was there. But an eerie, I mean, the building itself, there were times it kind of felt like the shining hotel on the inside, the hallways and things. And so mm-hmm. you're just sort of cut off from everyone else. And of course, after the first night, Michaeline did not sleep with me again. So <laughs> I mean, I was kind of isolated from the rest of the group who were all clumped together in their rooms and off by myself. And just that walk to where we would meet, it always sort of felt like either miles and miles of fear or someone just was following me, which I guess there was if she and her one of her male friends decided to hitch a ride back to San Francisco. Now, this co-worker, you said that he was touched as well. Did he bring something home with him? So I, God, Peter will <laughs> kill me for sharing this. I ended up contacting him and saying, you know, Peter, I just, I know you're going to think I'm insane, 
so please don't. But, you know, I live in San Francisco, so everyone kind of writes us off as crazy anyway. But, <laughs> Actually, um, <laughs> I want to get Diane to your crazy city of San Francisco. I love San Francisco. I'm glad. I'm glad. You should you should come here sometime. It'd be a, that would be a fun meetup, actually. We could take you on some of our ghost tours. I, I, just, I explained my experience. I'd already spoken to him one-on-one about the dream and how weird it felt, and he kind of felt the same way. And so I told him, you know, what my psychic did to remove these spirits. And, and he said, yeah, you know, I came home and my wife, she felt them as well. And I did not know his wife was actually a, a spiritual healer, which would never have fit the image of this particular person who's very corporate, you know, at the time, especially. And he said, yeah, she, um, she managed to uh, massage off whatever I brought home, but he brought something home as well. So it, I, I think they're just really bored spirits sitting up in uh, Portland in this place that has a lot of people coming and going now. And maybe they just want to have a little fun. Yeah, it seems like they're coming and going as well then. So it, it makes yeah, it would have been fun to be in the poor farm. I mean, I, I think I would have mm-hmm. slipped my wrist if someone said, Welcome to the poor farm. This sure. is your room. The well, psychic who helped you, does he know where they go once they leave you? Or is he just focused on getting rid of them? Terry, I should ask him that. You know, he the funny thing about it is he I think he helped them cross over. I don't okay. I think they were earthbound. I don't think they'd crossed over or he helped them get to wherever they needed to be. He basically had this spray that he created based at it's like a lavender based spray. It's almost like a liquid sage, like when you sage, if you smudge your mm-hmm. house or whatnot with those sage rods, it's like a liquid version of that. And he just sprayed me on it and I felt them leave my, my back, but they didn't stick around. They just left. So mm. I, I, I would say that he would be apt to help them cross over or do whatever they needed to do. But, you know, my sneaking suspicion is that they probably went back to the poor farm and waited for their next victims. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of funny, the, the parallels in this, not funny, haha, but a little bit, is because it's set up to be kind of like an adult playground, like to come, very much like Disney. And so I was just thinking of the Haunted Mansion where it says, beware of hitchhiking ghosts, you know, because they'll follow you home. So it's almost like the adult version of Disneyland, kind of, that you go there and then, you know, hitchhiking ghosts come home with you. I mean, it almost is. I hadn't thought about that, but really, it kind of is. And in fact, if I knew the people who owned it better, it would be fun to send them that sign. But I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that they would actually find it funny. And I actually intentionally did not want to check. But I suspect there are going to be other stories that either mirror mine or, or more intense than mine. It definitely is a haunted place. I mean, just being there and even feeling and thinking about it now. If I were to really open myself up to it, I could feel that energy still. It's just. Kind of, it's unique though. I recommend it because because of that uniqueness. But just you know, make sure you you know sage yourself when you uh, when you leave. <laughs> Have a great time, but sage yourself. <laughs> the sage wands in the car, um, the parking lot. Go ahead, and sage yourself. Uh, when they did the tour, did they talk at all about having hauntings there, or is it something that they try to hide? Oh no no no! They um they absolutely did not. And 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 now I may be speaking out of school when I say this, but the company that owns. Edgefield, I think they're called McMinimins, uh-huh. along those lines. They own places throughout Portland, the Portland metro area. And they go into places that are, I mean, a lot of them are restaurants. But I remember one time this same colleague wanted to take us to dinner in a funeral, form of funeral home. or I mean, it was a place where the dead were, I don't know what happened to them, but I think it was a funeral home. And I just remember saying to myself and, and then to them, you know, there's no way I'm walking into a funeral home and trying to have dinner. There's just no way from the moment I'm a block away those spirits are going to be like lining up or uh-huh. something. So they, uh, they, you know, they don't talk about it because they really want to be taken seriously. And in many ways, um, my understanding is that they're, they're developing properties that are 
falling into blight. So, you know, it, I don't want to discredit them because it, it is a great thing they do. It's just some of the properties they select are a little eerie for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, but they did not speak about the, 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 the ghosts or the hauntings. I would be wonder. I would wonder if they don't now maybe have like a ghost tour there. I just don't know how you couldn't. I mean, I, you know, I just think if you were to sit there long enough, you would see or hear something. There's sure. just no way. If every, you know, if everyone that I was with had some inkling of an experience, I just don't see how, you know, nine of us could all be wrong. It, it is something I wish I'd asked about. Now, it's funny because my, I think I mentioned in my email, I have a twin brother who also is a big fan and he has a, a colleague at work who has, I want to say a brother that's like a high up manager there or somehow he's connected and Aaron was telling me through this guy that all kinds of. And so kind of a different place that might be haunted that we're just curious about. Have you ever been to Alcatraz? I have been to Alcatraz, actually. And, you know, it's funny. Everyone goes when they're a kid to Alcatraz. But I had the, the benefit of my uh, taking my partner's nephew when he was 10 or 11. This was a few years back. And he was very, he is also very into the supernatural. And I've taken him on every ghost walk we have here in san francisco but just being there on alcatraz he um he uh he was up on all the hauntings and whatnot and actually was able to help me see and feel a few things but alcatraz is a neat place and you know it is incredibly haunted i think it's isn't it one of and maybe this is just a kind of a joke because you always seem to have the most haunted places (laughs) on the planet wherever you're talking about but i think it is considered one of the most haunted places in the country at least you're right it is and and i don't doubt it i mean every prison has that opportunity, but Alcatraz just has that extra stigma to it because I think it's just out there on an island and there's just no way out. And it is bleak and dreary, and you're right at the point of the bay where the um, you've got the fog streaming in, so it's all... I've never been there when it's not cold and windy, and I recommend going, but you know, wear your little charms to ward off because I think there are a lot of <laughs> tempted spirits there. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we want to thank you for sharing your experiences with this one and actually recommending it to us because I'd never heard of it and we didn't have a location in Oregon yet. So it was kind of cool to get someplace that we haven't been well, over I'm there. I'm glad that worked out that way. And I, if you have questions again, but or if not, I'm a huge listener and a fan and I am so excited to be chatting with you and hopefully we will talk again soon. Definitely. Yes. And we definitely have plans to get out to San Francisco. I've been trying not to sure get exactly Diane when. there for years. Yeah. I'm like, you have to get out there. All right, Jonathan. Have a great night. Bye-bye. With all these personal experiences, it's easy to believe that something is going on here. But is this paranormal activity? Could it just be residual energy? Could it be overactive imaginations? Is McMinimum's Edgefield haunted? That is for you to decide. Denise, we talk about places being the most haunted. But if I was to compare all of the episodes that we've done and with the amounts of experiences that are shared, so far I would say that this is, if not the most haunted, definitely one of the top haunted locations we have covered on History Goes Bump. I would have to agree with that, Diane. And when you have this many experiences, it is very hard as an open-minded skeptic to be like, well, those are all a bunch of BS or overactive imaginations and such. Something is going on there. And I'm thinking we need to visit the place. Not overnight. (laughs) Well, that was phenomenal. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for joining us and sharing that with us. 
And uh, we're going to go to a unique location for our next episode, Denise, the Philippines. Oh, very cool. Very excited about this. We had a woman who was originally from the Philippines share a place that she would like for us to share with you guys, and that is the island of Corregidor. I hope I said that right. I will know how to say it by the time we do the episode. And it was suggested to us by April. I'm not sure if it's Garachi or Garasi. I think it is Garasi. So looking forward to sharing that with everybody. Denise, we actually have run out of iTunes reviews. Oh, no. We don't have any for this episode. So if you guys have not left a review for us, we would love to have one. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Cindy Wad. Thanks. Hey, this is Christopher. And this is Joe. From the Curioso Podcast. And here at the Curioso, when we want to listen to ghost tours for the theater of the mind, we listen to the History Goes Bump Podcast. Societies rise. Societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen. The M Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time. <laughs>